Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great great way to start. That's right out of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that uh, gets your day going. I hope if you've had a, a good day that there's going to be plenty more of it to come. We've got a great show. Rob Louie is going to be joining me in just about 30 seconds. And then Dr. Greg Borgond will be coming in and talking about finishing well. You know, what compels a person to strive for excellence and what pushes a person to succeed? I can probably ask Rob that question because he's a successful guy. But finishing well is an important thing. And then in the second hour, my friend Jeff Verdorn will start a seven-part series on the book of Revelation. That's all today. But to get things started, Rob Bluey is my Washington, D.C. correspondent. He gives me information as to what's going on in our nation's capital. He's also the executive editor at the Daily Signal. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be with you today. Yeah, lots going on. I would love for you to uh, give me a little impeachment recap, if you would. Yes. Well, uh, as your listeners probably saw on Saturday, the U.S. Senate wrapped up its trial of President Trump, uh, the former president, that is. And uh, it uh, took an unexpected twist at the end. It looked like Saturday morning we might actually have witnesses uh, testifying at the trial, and then uh, the senators reversed themselves, came to an agreement, and ultimately decided to wrap things up. Uh, the president, former President Trump, was of course acquitted, uh, but there were seven Republicans who decided to join all of the Democrats in voting uh, to convict him. So, um, you know, not um, not ex- the exact same showing that he had for his first impeachment trial, but still ten votes short of what they needed uh, for the two thirds to actually convict him. Uh, The former president was already um, obviously in Florida and had left office when the trial took place, Bill, so there wasn't any um, ability to remove him from office, but there was the opportunity, had he been convicted, to hold a second vote, um, which would have determined whether or not he could run for public office again. Of course, we never got to that point, so I think that as, as I read one commentator say today, both sides got what they wanted. Um, Democrats uh, had the uh, opportunity to give something to their base in terms of holding the president, former president accountable, but uh, but you know, not entirely eliminating him from, uh, from public life. And Republicans were able to either um, make a position where they uh, wanted to criticize the former president or stand firm with him. And so uh, going forward, um, there's um, <laughs> the very likelihood that uh, we have a rematch in 2024, Mm. um, or that the uh, former president decides to to sail off into the sunset and uh, make his influence known in other ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rob, is uh, there anything else coming down in his direction like censure, or is that now off the table? Well, there have been discussions of of taking other actions like that, but I, I do think that 
um, both President Biden and uh, the Democrats in Congress uh, have a, a pretty big to-do list, Bill. So mm-hmm. I, every really moment do. they spent, yeah, every moment they spend talking about uh, Donald Trump is is less time that they have to uh, to focus on COVID relief and some of the other priorities that they they've promised. So I, um, I I suspect that we probably won't see anything. What we what we are planning to see though is for uh, Speaker Pelosi has announced that uh, she would like to create something on par with the 9-11 commission mm-hmm. to look at what happened on January 6th. So there very will, very likely will be another report um, in the months to come, which I'm sure will examine uh, President Trump's actions. But uh, yeah, in terms of a short-term uh, situation, I, I think that probably not. Um, I think that there's going to be other ways that maybe Donald Trump now looks to uh, to move on from from this episode and um, and, and and seek to, you know, still influence the Republican Party in ways that uh, that he has been able to do so for the past five years. And we'll see that that comes in the form of uh, political endorsements. Uh, there are some races, um, governor's races, in, uh, including my home state here of, in Virginia, which will be determined in 2021. And he may decide to wade into some of those political fights. Mm-hmm. Rob, where are we with the COVID relief bill? Well, Congress is on recess this week um, because of the the holiday, and that is uh, is obviously going to delay things just a little bit. But it, it did make uh, Democrats did make some progress last week. I think it's debatable in terms of whether or not um, it was it was the type of progress that everybody would would necessarily agree with because it ended up being very much a party line vote, which is the opposite of what uh, President Biden said he wanted. He really wanted to have some consensus and compromise on this bill. Um, Two House committees advanced uh, legislation last week, uh, one which would increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour, the federal minimum wage, that is, and another one which uh, has has kind of the meat of the COVID relief um, uh, bill. So that will uh, find its way to the House floor. Uh, There's a debate, though, in the Senate about whether or not you can accomplish all of the things that that the Democrats want to put in the bill. And we've talked about this before. There are certain limitations on what can be done with 51 votes in the Senate. Uh, Otherwise, you would need 60 to overcome a Republican filibuster. And one of the big things hanging out there is the $15 minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's an issue that um, has even divided Democrats. Uh, Kristen Sinema of Arizona has indicated that she would not support that as part of the COVID relief bill. Um, It should be handled separately. So you've had other senators like Bernie Sanders who see it as an opportunity, I think, to advance a longstanding priority. And uh, what better way to do that than to tack it onto the COVID relief bill? So uh, some still some unanswered questions, Bill, but it's making its way um, through through the process. Um, in terms of what it means for individual Americans, there, there will be, a, at least in the House plan, uh, checks for $1,400 going out. Obviously, there are income limitations on that. So um, $75,000 for single, uh, $150,000 for, for couples. And, uh, and you know, I don't expect that to change a whole lot when it moves over to the Senate. Mm-hmm. Rob, give me your take on this minimum wage idea. If it raises to $15 an hour, you'll we'll lift, what, 900,000 people out of poverty, but 1.4 million people will lose their jobs. So what is your take on all this? Yes, uh, so it, it will uh, have have some big impacts like that, and that is one of the reasons why I think it is dividing even some Democrats who might traditionally be in support of a minimum wage. Uh, first of all, we have to understand this is a a pretty big hike. Um, we're talking about doubling the minimum wage. 
Um, I'm, I'm certainly not opposed to people being paid $15 an hour. I, I do think, though, that um, anytime the government imposes a, a mandate like this, it does have unintended consequences. And as you just noted, there will be a lot of people, particularly on the lower end of the income scale, who end up losing their jobs as a result of this. And that's simply because businesses are going to be forced to pay everybody this $15 minimum wage. Uh, but they're probably not going to be able to double their prices. If you're a right. restaurant owner, you're not going to be able to double the price of, of the meal because your customers will just stop stop you know going there. And so what do you do? You will look at for places to cut and you will end up cutting people who have a job now but might not be able to have a job um, with a $15 minimum wage. But Bill, there are other consequences. And one that we looked at, which I think your listeners might be interested in, is the impact on child care. So if all of a sudden you have to pay a child care worker $15 an hour, uh, there will be some families that are not able to um, afford that. Um, I know that my wife and I would have been hard pressed when, when we had our first child, um, you know, to be paying that rate um, at the time. Now, every state has different regulations. I mean, there are some states that require, um, you know, one one child care provider to you know oversee a certain number of, of children. And so there's a lot of factors that go into this. So we broke it down state by state, and particularly in the southern U.S. states, um, that's where you're going to see the biggest impact. Um, and there's, um, there's a pretty significant um, ar argument to be made, uh, particularly if you're, if you're a, a single mother, that you, know, you might not have alternatives to turn to. Um, if you are a two-parent household, yes, maybe one of the parents can stay home and take care of the kids if it makes sense financially, but not everybody has that choice. And I think that that's uh, one of the things that we need to pay attention to are these unintended consequences that come with a minimum wage hike. Mm -hmm. I mean, should governments demand that businesses practically double their minimum wage requirement? When you talk about a living wage, that's obviously a good thing for sure. But if you're 16 years old and you're and maybe you're selling Snickers bars at the uh, at the snack sh shack at the at the municipal pool, do you need to make a living wage? And does well, that person can they can that person stay in business? Well, the, my argument, Bill, is that the government should should stay out of this and, and it should be the businesses themselves that determine that uh, based on, on, you know, the situation they face. And we've actually seen, uh, you know, a number of businesses uh, do this. And the other thing I think we have to remember here is the big players, the big corporations are going to be able to absorb a minimum wage hike much better than the mm, small guys. Right. And so if you're if you're a small business, I mean, that's who it's going to really impact. Um, so if you're a Walmart or an Amazon, I mean, you could probably figure out ways with your, your profit margin to um, to make it work. And in some cases, those companies have, have already decided to to move to this uh, this wage. But yes, it's um, it's it's going to have a big impact and it's going to have a big impact. In, in, in some places more than others. Like, for instance, you know, just looking at the states, we do the state by state breakdown of childcare, um, places like Iowa will see a 33% increase uh, in childcare costs, whereas in Washington state and California, it's in the single digits. So mm -hmm. there are some reasons for that. Those states have already decided on their own to increase wages or, you know, there are other factors associated with that. So, yeah, I, I think any time that the federal government's making a decision that affects all 50 states and all of us, uh, there will be some winners and there will be other losers. Mm -hmm. Rob Bluey is my guest. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion. It looks like Parler has come back online as a social media alternative. We'll learn more about that when we be back in just 90 seconds.
That music screams Rob Bluey. It is Tuesday, and Rob is my regular guest. We're all, always glad to talk to Rob. He is my Washington, D.C. correspondent. I always learn what's going on in the nation's capital. And, Rob, it looks like Parler's back online. Several weeks, in fact. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it's never easy when, uh, when some of the big players like Amazon and, and Apple and Google are, are, are come after you. So it, it took Parler a little bit of time to figure out its solution. But, um, but you know, what happened, just to, to give the backstory here, is, of course, after the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, there were, um, you know, many of the big tech players who, who were looking um, at some of the activity that was taking place on social media platforms. And Parler, which had become an alternative to places like Twitter and Facebook, where people could have a discussion free, mostly of moderation and censorship, uh, they, um, they were a, a place where, you know, there were some people having conversations that were, were probably inappropriate. And uh, and these big players like Amazon decided to remove them from its servers. And so Parler needed to figure out how to get back online and to do so in a way that was sustainable long term. So in other words, to find somebody who would be willing to um, to work with them in its terms of service. And so they've, they've now done that. And uh, it, yes, it's still a little bit slow. Um, but uh, but I think that it's important for Americans to have alternative platforms to have these conversations. I hear more and more, Bill, every day from people uh, who write to the Daily Signal and complain about social media censorship. In fact, we have a story about uh, you know a, a big nonprofit that was removed from from. Um, uh, Twitter and uh, just this past week. I mean, so it is It is not just individuals. There are a, a, a alarmingly a number of places that uh, seem to be uh, getting censored. And for, for reasons that they can't figure out, they're not really clearly in violation of the terms of service from my perspective, but they might be uh, presenting issues or views that are contrary to, to popular opinion. But um, that's why Parler and other places like it are important, I think, to give people that outlet and to still remain connected. Mm-hmm. Over at the Daily Signal, Rob, there's a great uh, story up at dailysignal.com for my listeners. And the title is, It's Time to Hold School Boards Accountable, This Father Says. Turns out this father is Rob Bluey. <laughs> well, yes, I, and it was me interviewing another. It was me interviewing another father, and right. so the, the two of us we had a great uh, conversation. Um, obviously, uh, school boards make a lot of the decisions in terms of our, our children's future, and this particular parent. Um, uh, John Pritchett of Fort Worth, Texas, was talking about an organization he created called Focus on Students, which holds the which aims to hold the uh, school board accountable for decisions that um, that it is responsible for making. And and frankly, he says that they're not doing a very good job right now. And part of the reason for that is they're focused on things that uh, they don't really have to do with reading, writing, and arithmetic, but have to do with political matters, like um, what they're going to do about teaching critical race theory in, mm-hmm. in, in classes and, and things of that nature. And he said that, uh, you know, it's really important for, for voters to pay attention to this. It's not just the national elections or the congressional elections that will make a difference in your life. In some cases, it's actually the local elections that where you can have the greatest impact. And, and it, Bill, and even in a big city like Fort Worth, Texas, it was shocking to me to see the low participation rate 
um, in the electoral process for the school board. And so this group basically wants to make sure that not only are good candidates running for the school board, but the community is actually participating in, and turning out to vote. So I think it's an admirable lesson. It's one of those things that we should we should be encouraging from a civic standpoint. And I think it can happen all over the place um, in, in all of our states. It's not just uh, not just Texas that's having an issue. It's probably uh, communities all across our country. And I'm pleased to report that today, finally, in my own children's uh, school district, uh, the kids were back in school. Okay. Now, not all, not all the kids, <laughs> just just a, a few of the groups. But my kids have another month to wait before they get back to school, and that'll be the first time in a year uh, oh that they will have set foot in the school building. So we are very slow here in Northern Virginia, but uh, we're getting there. Yeah, well, that's exciting for the Blueys to have their kids back in school in a month. It certainly is, and uh, and 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 I'll I'll tell you, it's gonna it, as much as we've talked on the show about how how valuable and how much we cherish this time together at home. I think that you know some of the things that you pick up in the classroom and those social interactions with friends are really important for kids. And uh, you know, Europe has figured out a way to do this, and other countries that have suffered with COVID have figured out a way to focus on the schools. And I think that you know, schools need to be at the top of the list. And uh, and I do. This is one thing I'll always tell you. I, I applaud um, you know those in in uh, in the Biden administration who are working to do this. I think it's really important that they they uh, you know keep a focus on this. And uh, and states uh, put a priority on, on getting teachers vaccinated so they're not putting in harm's risk. But you know, it, Bill, it's uh, it's if we're going to follow the science, then we should look at the science. And we know that uh, the kids you know do not really transmit the disease when they're in these classrooms, particularly if they're following the the social distancing rules and wearing the masks and doing those other things. So I'm hopeful that this experiment that we're now going through in, in uh, Northern Virginia works out. And I hope that other school districts can get back. Uh, the kids are only going to be back two days a week um, oh at most. And mm. so, you know, there's still, there's still a hybrid model in place, okay. but um, we're getting there every little bit. Yeah. Rob, what is the agenda of Black Lives Matter relative to the classroom? Well, I, I'm glad you asked because um, our, our friend and our, our my colleague, Jarrett Stepman, who's been a guest on your show before, has an amazing um, investigative report uh, the, on the Daily Signal today, which I encourage your listeners to check out. And he goes through and looks exactly at what's going on, particularly when it comes to the educational setting. And, uh, and just as we saw in, in Fort Worth, Texas, in my interview with, uh, with that parent, uh, this is happening across, uh, across the, the nation. Um, we are seeing increasingly an effort on the part of committed activists on the left who want to advance a certain agenda, uh, take their message to, to schools and get them to embrace it. Uh, not, to, uh, not, not unlike what we saw with the New York Times in the 1619 Project, where there was a concerted effort to create an educational product to go along with uh, the New York Times Magazine to get that into schools. And so, yes, uh, it's very much uh, alive and well. And I think that, uh, again, it comes at the expense of focusing on these political issues, which are probably best dealt with outside of the classroom, at home, or in a setting where, where parents and others uh, can have those conversations, as opposed to teachers um, really indoctrinating students with a particular point of view. And there's already been great concern about this at the college level. And I think increasingly we're seeing it at, at as, you know, as young as kids in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Some of my listeners are, are pushing me back a little bit for towards the minimum wage topic, which is fine because it's a great, interesting topic. But a question sure. uh, popped up by Mike saying, does push for a minimum wage hike come from a desire to bring moms home to get them out of the workplace or some stereotype like that? 
So, uh, the, yeah, so there are, um, I mean, I, I've heard that argument. I've heard people saying that, you know, actually increasing the minimum wage would be a good thing for, for family formation because mm -hmm. it would it would force, you know, uh, more mothers to, to stay at home because, you know, either the businesses would lay them off or they wouldn't be hiring. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things we already know, Bill, is that women have, have suffered uh, more than men when it comes to the you know the the recession and mm -hmm. what we've gone through with the covid layoffs i mean they were they were in some cases the the, the ones who had to bear the brunt of um, of those job losses and so i think that the argument that that we as as conservatives would make in response to that is we want to give people the choice like if i am have <laughs> i am very grateful that that my wife in particular was able to work part time now and help help care for our our you know um 16 month old daughter so um, but I realize that it's it's a decision that's really individual. I mean, there are some parents who who may not choose to to pursue that that path, and I don't know that we should force them to be in a situation where they have to stay at home if that's uh, if that's not the best uh, for them. Uh, you know, in some cases, it's you know you turn to grandparents to help out with with childcare. I mean, there's a number of options. I realize that, but I think that anytime you're using government uh, to limit the freedom of individuals, that's not a good thing. And that makes us all kind of slaves to the system in a certain way. Yeah. Stuart Hornsby started a little yogurt shop, built it from the ground up in 2013. And when it comes to minimum wage, he's freaking out a little bit, isn't he? Yes, and and these are the types of stories that uh, we're trying to tell on the Daily Signal because these are the small businesses that we talked about earlier, Bill, that, that do have have a hard time and they do struggle with making these these types of decisions. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's a perfect example of um, of, of what uh, what the consequences are are going to be, and it's why I think you are probably going to see even in some states that you know may you know trend blue and have have democratic representation in congress uh, really kind of lobby their their members and say you know don't forget about us and don't forget about the impact that this is going to have particularly at a time i mean you know if I think the other challenge is, you know, there are so many businesses still struggling to overcome the um, what, what's going on with COVID. I mean, just, you know, speaking from personal experience, my, my you know, a, a, the dry cleaner that I go to says business is significantly down, you know, oh, to the tune to of 80 percent, 80 percent with people like staying at home and, you know, just not not u utilizing the services. And so, you know, there are. Um, there are there's that on top of this, and so I I want to just make it clear to your listeners that I support certainly individuals getting pair, paid a fair wage. Um, I think that the the question here is whether or not you should have the government imposing it on private businesses, or if there's another means to attempt to achieve that. Yeah, I'm not a fan of government telling business owners how much they have to pay their employees when this That's, when the jump right. is almost fifty percent. That's that's kind of scary. It makes it tough. It makes it certainly makes it tough, and uh, and it, it's going to be uh, a situation where there are some businesses that won't survive, and some workers that uh, that end up unemployed. A a as the Congressional Budget Office said, yes, there will be a lot of people who get a pay raise, but there mm -hmm. will be a lot of people who um, who see their income uh, dwindle to nothing. Yeah, Rob, thanks so much for the time. Always love talking to you, and have a great rest of the day. Rob Blue has been my guest, executive editor at the Daily Signal. After a short break, we'll be back with Dr. Greg Borgond and how important it is to finish well. Be right back.
Welcome back. Some of the big questions in life are things like what, what what drives a person to succeed? What what motivates a person to want to do their very best? And 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 what about striving for excellence? These are all really good things, but it's important. And we all I've, we've had these conversations before. Everyone wants to finish well. Right? We're going to talk about that today with Dr. Greg Borgon. He's my guest. He's written a book called Leadership Beef Jerky. It's uh, some great principles to chew on, and this is one of the topics in the book. Greg, welcome to the show. That's good to be with you, Bill. Yeah. So let's talk about finishing and how to avoid barriers and how to finish well. Yeah. I doubt that anybody in your audience gets up each morning and says, gee, I want to finish the race poorly. No, not in my audience. <laughs> if they do, they probably need counseling. <laughs> well, Certainly, many motives might be in play to ask the questions that you started the show with, some laudable and others probably not so much. Um, I believe that deep within every individual, there's a desire to really finish well. I agree. They may not start it well, mm-hmm. but they would certainly want to finish well. Well, and, using gr- grounded and, theory, uh, go ahead, Bill. Well, I'm just curious. Let's define finish well. What does that mean? Oh, to finish well, um, I'll put it in, in the words of the person who originally defined it, my mentor, J. Robert Clinton. Here's okay. what he meant by finishing well. Finishing well refers to reaching the end of one's life, having been faithful to the calling God's placed upon that life. It's about Christ's followers being more passionate about Christ and his mission as they fulfill their life purposes than they were at the beginning. It also entails a life that experiences the depth of God's grace and love. It's, it is living out one's destiny and making of one's unique and ultimate contribution in expanding God's kingdom. Wow, that's, that's solid. That's solid. Fine. That's yeah. solid. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> well, uh, it, it's backed up, Bill, by a, a lot of research over a period of almost 30 years. J. Robert Clinton was the former professor of leadership at Fuller Seminary, and he and his team used a, a qualitative research method called grounded theory to study the lives of, of Christian leaders, both biblical, historical, and even contemporary Christian leaders. So when they study these lives, and they've done over 3,800 case studies um, they discovered uh, and underscored the findings that I'm about to share with you. One of the startling facts, Bill, is that only 30% finished well of wow. all of these leaders. It was evident in, first of all, the biblical leaders that there was enough in the Bible to determine how they lived their lives and how they finished. Then it extended to historical Christian leaders and then finally to uh, a variety of contemporary Christian leaders. And according to Clinton, anecdotal evidence from today indicates that this ratio is probably generous, probably less than one in three finishes well today. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they've done is they underscored four types of finishes. They're defined uh, initially in this book called Starting Well by Richard Clinton. I just pulled that book off of my shelf. I was cataloging all my books and refreshed my memory about it. But here are the types of finishes. 
cut off early is one type of finish. Now, these leaders are taken out of leadership by assassination or they're killed in battle or prophetically denounced or overthrown. Some of this activity was directly attributed to God. Some of these were positive and others were negative. Some examples in the Bible are Abimelech and Samson, uh, Absalom and Ahab. Uh, they would be some negative examples. Some positive examples, those who were taken out prematurely, were Josiah, uh, uh, John the Baptist, and even James. Mm-hmm. So that's one category, cut off early. A second type of finish is finished poorly. These leaders were going downhill in the latter part of their ministry. This might be reflected in their personal relationship with God or in terms of their competency in ministry. And some examples, again, from the Bible would be Gideon, Samson, Eli, Saul, even, uh, the first king of Israel, and Solomon, mm-hmm. the third king of Israel. The third type of finish, Bill, is finished so-so. These <laughs> leaders did fairly well, but were limited in their ministries because of sin. They didn't complete what God had for them, or they had some negative ramifications surrounding their lives and ministries, even though they personally walked with God. David would be an example of that, King David, the second king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, for example. And then you have the fourth category, which he's referring to when he talks about only three and ten finish well. Um, and that's called the group that finished well. These leaders were walking with God at the end of their lives. They contributed to God's purposes at a, a, a very high level. They fulfilled what God had for them to do. Certainly Abraham, Job, Joseph, uh, even Joshua, Caleb, Samuel, Elijah, Jeremiah, Daniel comes to mind, John, Paul, mm. Peter. You know, those are some of those examples should encourage the audience because you may have started out poorly, and you may even be in a transition point, a boundary in your life where you're moving towards leaving a positive contribution, and that would certainly be the case of somebody like Peter. Yeah, and of and, course, of course we, we didn't intentionally leave out the person who finished the best, and that'd be Jesus. Yeah, but he was God-man. That's true. That's true. <laughs> That's true. He's in so, a category by himself. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'd separate him out altogether. Okay. So those are the the kind of finishes that the research had had identified. So how we finish, Bill, is all about what we've talked about on your program before, legacy. Mm -hmm. And if you recall, I I defined that as the aroma left in the lives of people who have come within our sphere of of influence. That's a big deal. Over the course of our life. Yeah, it is. That's a big deal. So you have to ask yourself, what kind of aroma am I going to leave? Yeah. Um, and, and that it goes a little deeper than that, though, Bill. It's, have I fulfilled my divine ordained purpose? Because it says in, in Ephesians 2.10 that God prepared in advance a unique purpose for our lives. So have we fulfilled that divinely ordained purpose? Have I made progress in leveraging my giftedness, my wiring, my spiritual gifts, my natural abilities, acquired skills for eternal uh, ends? Mm-hmm. Will, will the substance of my life, and this is important, leave a positive impact that will endure after I'm gone. That's a big one. Yeah, it is. Although starting well is important, finishing well is absolutely critical. So I believe, Bill, that within the soul of every human being, God's placed a sense of the eternal that compels us to ask questions and uh, to the following questions. It's found actually in Ecclesiastes 3.11, where it says that God has placed a sense of the eternal into each person's heart, yet not so that he knows what God's done from the beginning in, and because that is every created being, every person born on this earth, we, over the course of our life, we're asking ourselves 
three questions in various forms, but they all kind of orbit around these three issues. Why am I here? Am I making any headway? And will what I do have any lasting significance? I almost have to stop and think those are three big ones. What is my purpose? What is my progress? And what kind of permanent effect impact will I have on the and in the lives of others yeah and you know, when we get before the judgment seat of Christ bill I, I, he's not going to ask how much money we made um he's going to be talking about what we've done with what he's given us mm-hmm. in terms of our faith yeah and so these issues of purpose progress and permanence they're relevant for us right now to be asking those questions it's also true um, that God has wired us for three reasons in addition to us asking these questions, Oftentimes, our sense of identity um, is corrupted by either the people we hang around with or we take our um, cues from the society in which we live or the culture in which we're born into. But biblically speaking, we're created for three purposes, Bill, a cause to die for, like Jesus, who had the salvation of humankind, that's what he died for, or a challenge to embrace. Again, Jesus is our model. He had a challenge to embrace, which was certainly the scourging and the crucifixion, and loved ones to protect. And for Jesus, that's humankind. But for in each one of us, part of that sense of the eternal, that seed of the image of God, um, compels us to, to start asking questions about the cause we give ourselves over to. And, you know, God calls us sometimes to a people group or a cause or a combination of the both. So what cause are we to die for? What's the hill we're willing to die on? A challenge to embrace and loved ones to protect. Mm-hmm. That's pretty powerful. That's really powerful. I mean, I think of some of the persecution that Christians suffer around the world, and they, they do not denounce their faith, and then they get, uh, they get murdered. Yeah. You know, Bill, I, I, I'm not a conspiratorial person, but as I am observing what's happening in our world today, especially in, in our own culture— I don't think it's too far a stretch of the imagination to believe that even before God calls me home, um, I might start to see physical persecution here in the United States against followers of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, we're seeing uh, the seeds of that being planted right now in our culture. Mm -hmm. In any case, finishing well um, takes these matters into consideration, not only the questions that we ask, but come into a realization about the cause of the challenge and, and the commitment to protect those whom we love. So it takes these matters into consideration. What we need to understand, and we've stressed this on your program before, that none of us are an accident. We're not a coincidence. We're not a happenstance. We're not a mistake. We were on the heart of God before we ever came to be. And, and God has plans for us, it says in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, And uh, he has determined a purpose in advance, it says, Uh, before we ever came to be. So the big question is, or questions are, how will you cross the finish line? How will you finish? How will you be remembered? Who uh, has been left better off because of you? What artifacts will be uncovered after you're gone to validate the fact that you walked this earth and did it in a positive way and in a godly way? What residual effects will be evident? So if you left this world today, the question is, what type of finish would be true of you? Mm -hmm. Now, you know, it's never too late 
to begin living a legacy worth living in the lives of others. So what are we doing now? What are you doing now to determine God's purposes for your life? What are you doing now to facilitate God's giftedness in you? And what do you intend to do going forward to finish well? Well, this research that I've been referring to has identified some of the characteristics of those who who did finish well. So if finishing well is a preferred objective of our life, which I think it should be, Mm -hmm. what are the characteristics of people who finish well? What can we learn from biblical, historical, and contemporary Christians that uh, will help us be able to finish well? Uh, When I'm called home by the Lord, Bill, I hope to cross the finish line absolutely exhausted, having given my all for the kingdom purposes that matter, having set a model for my grandchildren to follow, having acquitted myself with honor so that I can lay my meager offering of dedicated service at his feet. Mm -hmm. Um, So so when, when you look at the research again, there are four overarching observations that Clinton and his team identified when they analyzed the data. Number one, few leaders finish well, which we've already referred to. Leadership is difficult, which we know. Number three, God's enabling presence is the essential ingredient of successful leadership. And number four, spiritual leadership can make a difference. Now, I can't imagine a follower of Christ who doesn't want to finish well. How uh, we cross the finish line really does matter. How we start is less important than really how we finish. So what does a person who finished well look like? That's the question that Clinton and his team raised. What observable characteristics were evident in his or her life? What what did that person's life journey indicate uh, to what, what did she or she aspire to? And and what was the focus of their life? I think that's the cliffhanger right there. I think we go to break and okay. we have people, you know, hardly wait to find out what, <laughs> what that is when we come back. So we'll take a short break. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We're talking about finishing well and the characteristics of finishing well. We'll talk about that when we come back. Dr. Greg Borgon, and we are talking about finishing well. And right before break, we were going to get to the six characteristics of finishing well. And I know there's some barriers to finishing well. So, Greg, let's jump into those. Sure. Well, not all the people that were part of this research that I've been talking about possessed all of these characteristics, but most had two or more uh, dominant traits. Um, uh, although undoubtedly incomplete, the following qualities emerged repeatedly. And there are some hints in there, Bill, for us in terms of us trying to determine how to finish well. Number one, they were spiritually vibrant. They maintained a personal Mm. and vibrant relationship with God right up to the end. Um, Number two, they were lifelong learners. They maintained a learning posture and continually learn from various kinds of sources, life in particular. Number three, they gave evidence of Christ-likeness in their character as seen by the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Uh, and number four, they were faithful and obedient. They lived out truth um, in a way so that convictions and the promises of, God's, of God were seen to be real. 
Um, legacy was another characteristic. They they left behind one or more ultimate contributions that last even to this day. A lasting a lasting legacy that's important for us to realize. So um, those were the six characteristics, Bill. As I said, uh, many of them had two or more of them, uh, but these were the characteristics that were pulled out of all of this research that they did. Mm-hmm. But what they also found were there were six barriers to finishing oil. You know, Greg, before we jump into that, I would love just to uh, go through a couple of these that we talked about, the sure. characteristics of finishing well. When you talk about uh, one or more ultimate contributions, like a lasting legacy, that legacy could be someone saying, every morning when I got up, I saw my dad at the kitchen table with his Bible open. Absolutely. I mean, that is a living legacy, isn't it? Yeah, or I saw my dad praying in, late in the evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the rest of us were watching TV, he was in the Word. Um, or that can be a legacy. Or the way in which a father or a mother came alongside their children and strategically gave them direction for their life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and not so much as a sage on a stage, but more like a guide by the side. What a legacy. I looked at my grandsons and seeing how they're turning out. And I'm thinking about if that's the only legacy I have, my life was well worth living. Beautiful. And um, so you're absolutely right, Bill. And then when you are going to be a lifelong learner, I assume that listeners of Faith Radio are doing that for that very reason. They want to learn. I mean, this is like the greatest job in the world because I show up and what I want to do is I want to learn. And I'm learning from various kinds of sources like you, Dr. Greg Borgon. Uh, about life in particular. And this is how I grow in my understanding of God's Word and get encouraged and get motivated and want to live out my my faith. So thank you for that. Well, you know, people who listen to your show, Bill, they're just not turning it on so they have noise in the background. They're They're intentional about it because of the way in which your show is constructed and how much you bring to them. I mean, the, the, the wonderful meal that you serve, that's a balanced meal of a lot of different guests with a lot of different subjects and a lot of different perspectives, but all from a biblical point of view. So mm-hmm. I want to thank you for your show and for what it means to me and what you're doing with your life, Bill, because you're going to be leaving a legacy. Oh, you're nice to say that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the barriers to finishing well. So we're talking about those whose life was cut off early or they finished poorly or they didn't finish well. They encountered barriers that were uh, they were unable to really get through. These barriers prevented them from finishing well today. You know, some time ago, I was approached by my boss suggesting that my business card be changed. <laughs> Somewhat bemused, he said, it couldn't get much longer, Greg, because at that time I was vice president of operations and strategic initiatives. I said, I wanted to shorten it to a title that reflected the primary role of a leader of others. And he said, well, what's that? I says, barrier remover. And so I think our job is, those of us that are being given an opportunity to lead, is to remove any impediments, Bill, that restrict others from performing at their optimum best. Our job is to to help them flourish from the foundation of their wiring, to be all God intended them to be, and to realize their full potential. And do so, organizations, I think, will serve well um, from these benefits. So anyway, the barriers that prevent people from finishing well are often self-inflicted. Now, if these barriers aren't addressed, 
they'll prevent a person from actually finishing well. To be sure, each barrier has gradations and degrees of dysfunctionality. The degree to which a barrier impedes a person uh, will determine the degree to which his or her effectiveness is limited and thus um, his or her hope of finishing well. Others could be added for sure, but these six dominated the research. Finances, their use and abuse. Uh, examples biblically would be Gideon's golden ephod and Ananias and Sapphira, whose life was taken because they mm-hmm. held back some money. Power, um, or the abuse of its power. Uzziah's usurping of a priestly privilege would be an example of that. Inordinate pride, leading to a downfall. David numbering of, of his people and his troops uh, was an example of which was called out in Scripture. Illicit relationships, sexual relationships. Certainly David and Bathsheba would come to mind there as well. Uh, family issues, critical unresolved issues that were kind of swept under the rug. David's family is riff with all those kinds of examples. Ammon and Tamer, Absalom would be examples. And the sixth one is living up the fumes of your past success or plateauing. Now, in our day and age, because we live in the fast lane, it's easy to get away with plateaued living and still come across we're spiritual, but sooner or later, the fumes dissipate. David, in the latter part of his reign, certainly would uh, uh, be one example of that before uh, his son's revolt. Now, to those six that came out of the research, I would add this one, Bill, another prevalent barrier to finishing well. It's emotional and, and psychological wounding. When people are scarred by other people or circumstances or events, it leaves a mark on them. And sometimes people wear that pain on their sleeves so everyone can see it. Uh, But it is a deep wound. Cain would be an example, Esau, Absalom again, and and Judas. Mm -hmm. So those are the barriers, Bill, to actually finishing the race well. So let me just finish up by talking about the, the disciplines that were derived Uh, from all of this research to give us some guidance on how you and I and anyone who's listening Mm -hmm. can finish well. Number one is perspective, having a broad perspective on a lifetime of ministry from which to interpret ongoing ministry. In other words, to see what we've done or the world around us from a biblical worldview, having that kind of a perspective. Another would be renewal, um, expectancy for renewal. All leaders should and people should uh, expect and they look for re- repeated times of renewal. Uh, the disciplines, the practice of the disciplines, the leader, we need to uh, you know, identify some disciplines that will help sharpen us and give us that kind of temper that's necessary. I mean, I'm talking about internal strength to weather the pressures of the world around us. Certainly a learning posture and making sure that we're constantly learning, that we don't think we arrived. We're all in the process of becoming yet not having arrived. And then this key one is having mentors in our life. Those who finish well, according to the research, had anywhere, Bill, from 10 to 15 significant mentors in their lives. Hmm. Now, that seems almost impossible unless you think about not only a physical mentor face-to-face with you, but some that you've never met. But every time you pick up something that they've written or you listen to something that they've said or you watch a podcast or listen to a podcast or watch a, a, a video of them, God feeds your soul. So when you take those kinds of mentors, and even in our reading of people who have passed the scene and still have something to teach us, you can see how it's possible to have anywhere from 10 to 15 mentors. But mentoring is absolutely essential. We can't take this life, this journey called life alone. So 
what I'd leave the audience with today, Bill, is just some key questions to ponder. Number one, if you keep going as you are, what legacy are you going to leave? If you keep doing the same thing, are you expecting a different result? So what legacy will you leave? Mm-hmm. Number two, what needs to change to finish well? Number three, which of these characteristics that I've just described are true of you or are not true of you? And finally, what do you desire your legacy to be? Every once in a while, Bill, um, probably almost every couple of months, I ask myself four questions. And these are the questions. What am I doing now I need to keep doing? What am I doing now I need to change? What am I doing now I need to stop doing? And what am I not doing now I need to start doing? Wow, those are great questions. Yeah, keep, change, stop, and start. I like that. if we're honest before God and in prayer and we're candid, um, God will give us the answers to those questions Mm -hmm. and will help us, Bill, I think, to finish the race well. Yeah. Greg, thank you so much for taking the time today on uh, teaching us how to finish well and questions to ask ourselves. We can do some little self-diagnostic. It's been really helpful. Oh, thank you, Bill. It's been great to be with you. Thank you so much. Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. You can go to heartofawarrior.org to learn more about Greg and his books and writings. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to start our seven-part series on the book of Revelation. My friend and Bible teacher and mentor, Jeff Verdorn. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.